Welcome everyone to our series, Living Right in a World Gone Wrong. We'll get into that in a minute. But a couple of announcements for things that are happening this week. One is that on Tuesday at 10 a.m. at Safety Town in Woodhaven, that's at Hall and West Roads, all moms and little ones are invited for the monthly Moms and Tots Day Out. Uh, so you, that's easy to find right behind the uh, police station and the community center there, and all are welcome to, to come for a good time. And then on Saturday morning, this Saturday morning at 10 a.m. to noon, is the Newcomer's Brunch at our house. Anybody who has not been to a brunch, uh, we would love to have you over, but we need to know how many are coming so Kim knows how much brunch to make. And uh, you, if you haven't, before you leave today, you need to let the folks over at the table know uh, that you're planning to come. And if you have children, your children are welcome to come as well. So we just want a chance to get to know you better and you us. No program. Uh, so if you don't have any questions about anything, that's okay. Uh, we'll just enjoy breakfast and each other's company. But uh, we'd love to have you. If you haven't come, so let them know that you will be, though. And if uh, you don't want to come, it's just more food for me. So I'm good either, either way. Kim's going to make the brunch for uh, whoever's there, okay? That's uh, this Saturday at 10 a.m. at our house. They'll give you a card when you register that shows you a map to uh, our place and has our phone number on it and all of that. All right, this is our seventh week in Living Right in a World Gone Wrong. And I have emphasized over the first six weeks that everybody agrees that there are things that have gone terribly wrong in our world. And you see the evidence of that all around you. But agreeing that things are wrong does not mean that we agree on what it is that's gone wrong and certainly don't agree on what it is we're supposed to do about it. And the reason uh, that we don't agree on the solutions is because we don't really agree on what the problems are. Because the way you view the problems and thus the solutions is affected by your view of the world or your worldview, the lenses through which you see everything. And that includes people and how they tick and how they mistick, how, how they're supposed to work and then how they don't work. But that's all affected by your view of human nature and your view of human nature as it relates to a God if you, if you believe in one. And all of that is part of your perspective on life that we call your worldview. And the worldview of most people practically speaking, is godless. Now, most people, as I said a couple of weeks ago, on surveys say they believe in God. So how is it that their view of the world could then be godless? Well, saying that I believe in God and actually believing that God plays an active role in my life and in the world are two totally different things. We sometimes hear people say, I believe, quote, there's something out there, right? Right? Well, believing there's something out there is a far cry from the biblical worldview. The God, who, the God who is there, in the words of Francis Schaeffer, and he is not silent, said Schaeffer. He is, he is actively speaking and he is actively working in his world. So practically speaking, the worldview of most people is godless. They practice a practical atheism. As evidenced by problems coming into our lives and we talk about those problems and God is nowhere to be found as to how we're to deal with those problems. And so even Christian people will counsel one another and God's not part of the program, unbelievably. 
But I remember years ago, my wife counseling a lady in, a, in, our, in our ministry at our parent church. And the, the lady was going on about her circumstances and her issues and so on. And after this had gone on for 20 or 30 minutes, Kim kind of broke in and she said to her, but, but what about God? And that was just an abrupt kind of water on the face. Oh, yeah, God. <laughs> and you see that that was an afterthought. And this, this lady, this, this Christian lady, had to be brought to think about God and God's active role in her life and in her situations. Most people live lives of practical atheism. And when there is no God, whether philosophically or practically, whether you actually say, I don't believe in a God, or you say, I do, but practically it makes no difference, either way, that means of necessity, then there is no sin. Sin presupposes God. And so we have no God, and we have this. We certainly then have no notion and no active notion of what the Bible calls sin and its functional working in the world and the problems, the wrongs that we see in the world. So all of this is part of the, the functional worldview by which most people operate. I am suggesting it's godless. Practical atheism. Sin is not a player. In fact, Whatever the problem or problems are, they're outside of me. I've been beating that drum for a few weeks, and I hope you've gotten the idea. <laughs> that for most people, whatever the problems are, it ain't me. It's outside of me. And there are all sorts of ways in which this approach to diagnosing the issues and then in turn the solutions manifests itself. That the problem is outside of us. You see that it applies to political solutions that you might support. Now, have you ever consciously thought about why it is you support the political uh, approach you do? Now, for many Christian people, it goes no further than this dude's going to take less of my money, I'm voting for him. Or this guy is, supports unions and I'm in the union, so I'm going to vote for him. So it's, he's going to do stuff that I think immediately benefits me, therefore he's my guy or gal. Well, maybe as a Christian, just for a minute, think a little bit deeper than that. And think about whether or not the solutions that the individual is proposing are based upon a biblical worldview. Are they based upon a view of the sinfulness of man? And I tried to tell you last week that... My understanding of many of the political solutions that are offered is that they take no account at all to the sinful nature of man and thus no account of all at all uh, regarding the, the solutions that are proposed. But it affects your political view, your worldview does, and how you see mankind and his nature. It affects your sociological view and the solutions for society that you support. And so if you, if you say education is the answer, and I'm all for education, but if you just say education is the answer, hear this, friends, education ain't the answer just in a vacuum. <laughs> education could be a huge part of the problem <laughs> depending on what it is you're instilling in those people you're teaching. It's not just knowledge. Knowledge has to have a framework. Biblically, does it not? 
So it's not just giving people facts. But that depends on your view of the world as to whether or not you believe that. So it affects what you see as the political solutions and the sociological solutions, and it applies to the personal therapies that you believe in and you subscribe to. Who are you going to go to? Who are you going to call? (laughs) Problem busters. Who's your problem buster? Well, that depends on how you view the source of problems is in turn going to dictate the therapies you subscribe to. Biblically, from a biblical worldview, the ultimate problem is internal and personal. Now, how do I know this? Well, the Bible teaches it throughout very clearly. You remember that God creates humanity and he gives them very clear instructions about himself, about themselves, and about his purpose for them and what he has assigned for them to do. And they disobey, and there are consequences for that disobedience. And those are recorded in Genesis chapter 3. That's why I ask you to turn to Genesis chapter 3, and let's be reminded of something. Genesis 3, there's just, I mean, you could go on for ages just in Genesis 3 because it lays the foundation. Uh, Genesis 1 through 3 lay the foundation for a biblical worldview. But in, in Genesis 3, we have the fall of humanity. And in the first verse, the serpent is more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, there's a number of things going on here that if you just take time to do what you should do as you read the Bible, ask questions. You go, what about that? Why is there a snake talking? And that would be a logical question for you to ask. And, and why does an Eve alarmed? You know, if, if a snake goes, hey... To you, and then starts talking, you're going to be a bit alarmed, aren't you? But not Eve, she's just chatting away. Why is that? Well, it is, it's my view that this happens very early on in their existence, very early on. That, that Adam and Eve have not been hanging around for years and years and years in the garden. And one of the reasons that I, I say that is because God is going to give them this, this probationary test very soon. Because do you remember that there were two uh, significant trees in the garden too? There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's forbidden. But then there's the tree of life. And if Adam and Eve hang around in the garden long enough and they wander to the tree of life, if you eat of the tree of life, you live forever. And so they're going to have this test first before they get to the tree of life. Now why do I say that? Well, because... At the end of Genesis chapter 3, when they are banished from the garden, there are cherubim set at the entrance to the garden with flashing swords so that they will not re-enter the garden and perhaps eat of the tree of life. So they're banished. They have lost their shot for now. 
to eat of the tree of life. The tree of life will appear again at the end of the Bible in the, in the new city of Jerusalem. And uh, so there are these two, and, and I believe that then God gives this test very early on, and so for Eve, it's not necessarily anything weird. She's still learning the ropes here about who's who and who talks and all of that, but here's what she does know. God was the first one to talk to her. God is her maker, and God gave her truth. And now she is hearing something contrary to that for the first time. And the serpent said in verse 1, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die. The serpent said to the woman, Here's God's real motive. He knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God knowing good and evil. The one speaking to her, according to Revelation chapter 12, is that old serpent, Satan, who according to Isaiah chapter 14, was cast down from heaven. Isaiah 14, I will be like God. And now he is saying to this first woman, God doesn't want you to be like him. His his desire was and is to be God. And he's now appealing to her to desire to be God. And verse 6 says, When the woman saw that the the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 2 in your Bible, 1 Timothy 2 says that it was the woman who was deceived and sinned. That's what it says. And as a result of that, 1 Timothy 2 is repeating God's order that he gives throughout Scripture, namely that that men are to lead in their homes and in the church. But the rationale for that in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is that the woman was deceived and ate first. Now, what is that? How is it that God is saying in the New Testament that the order for the home and for the church is to be male leadership based upon the fact that Eve is the one who deceived and sinned. Because we always call it Adam's sin, don't we? And in fact, in Romans chapter 5, by the sin of one man, one man, all became sinners. So how do you harmonize the role of Eve in this whole thing and Adam in this whole thing? Well, here's how you do it. In chapter 2 of Genesis, God made Adam first. In fact, 1 Timothy 2 says that. Adam was formed first and then Eve. And then Eve was deceived and, and sinned. So Paul, who writes in the New Testament, makes a big deal of the fact that Adam was formed first. And that's for good reason. Because God formed the man first. And he gave the man instructions for what he was supposed to do. And then he made the woman to be his what? His helper. God makes very clear to Adam, you're supposed to lead this deal, Adam. Satan knows who's supposed to lead this deal. He knows who, what God's order for creation is. And he goes to the woman on purpose. And the woman chats. 
And the big question is, where is our hero? Where are you, Adam? And verse 6 says this. She gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Well, thanks a lot, fella. This would have been a good time for you to speak up. This would have been a good time for you to exercise some leadership. But no leadership coming from Adam. And so in 1 Timothy 2, what Paul is saying is Satan attacked God's order for the home in the first sin. And it involved the man acquiescing in his in this disobedience, and abdicating his leadership. And he watches this whole thing go down, literally. And she gives some to him, and he, he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, verse 7, they were, realized they were naked, sewed fig leaves together, and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And so here, God is apparently in a pre-incarnate state such that he walks. Prior to the incarnation that would occur in God becoming man, he takes a pre-incarnate form and walks in the garden. They hear him walking. And apparently they know what that sounds like. They've heard it. So they've been there not very long, but long enough to know what that sounds like. And they hear the sound of the Lord God coming. And it says, in the, in the cool of the day, why does it say in the cool of the day? I believe Moses is emphasizing that this is a pattern that God was establishing. And in just a few days, he had already established this pattern of meeting and, and speaking with them. In the cool of the day. And he comes in the cool of the day, but they hid from the Lord. And the Lord called to the man, where are you? And the Lord asks questions that he already knows the answer to. He does that throughout Scripture. He already knows where he is. He's smoking him out. Verse 10, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? This is where my mom learned to do this. Did you hop anybody's fence on the way home? She already knows this. She would ask me questions she already knew the answer to. How did she? How, God knew the answer because he knows everything. How does my mom know? Because she had people in my neighborhood who knew everything. And they all knew everything for each other. And they would call each other. And they'd say, I saw Kenny going through Mr. So-and-so's yard. And he hopped the fence. And then when Kenny comes home, my mom says, did you hop so-and-so's fence? And like George Washington, I said, I cannot tell a lie. No, actually, I denied the whole thing. And then she says, well, so-and-so said you did. So go get a switch in the backyard. Anybody else grow up having to choose the weapon with which you were disciplined? I had to go get my own weapon, get the thing, bring it to her. She pulls all the leaf off and all that, and whap, and she was pretty good at it. Anyway, so God asked questions that he already knows the answer to. Have you eaten from the tree, verse 11, that I commanded you not to eat from? And then here we go. The man says, 
the woman you put here with me. Now, do you all see that the whatever the problem is, it ain't me, goes way back? It's the woman you put here. I mean, immediately. And listen, some, all of us do this. And some of us have a real difficult problem with the minute a flaw, let alone a sin, the minute a flaw is pointed out about us, we immediately start deflecting. Other names come out. So-and-so told me this person did it. I can't tell you how many times I hear this stuff in counseling. But it has a long and inglorious pedigree. And it goes all the way back to here. And the first thing is, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. I mean, in his own words, he's hanging himself. Okay, you're blaming the woman, but I put you in charge. Where were you? I was just watching this whole thing. She gave it to me, so I ate some. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this? You have done. Now, I want you to notice the personal nature of this. You have done. And the woman said, the serpent. The man says the woman. The woman says the serpent. The implication in the man's words are, it's the woman. And notice, he's not content to leave it with the woman. It's the woman, what? So you all have heard me say, you know, you, you, make, you only made one woman so far. And this is a defective model, apparently. You know, this is the woman you made. You gave her to me, and there, here she is, hanging out, talking to snakes, and giving out fruit. You did it. And then the woman doesn't have to say that. After this, she says, the serpent deceived me. And implied is, and we know who made the serpent. We know who made everything. You did. So this is pointing back. Fingers are pointing everywhere, pointing to the woman, pointing to the serpent, all ultimately pointing to God. But where they're not pointing is at us. But God will have none of it. What is this that you have done, says God to the woman in verse 13. In verse 14, so the Lord God says to the serpent, because you have done this. And then he pronounces curses upon the serpent. In verse 15, he gives first indication of his solution to the problem. And the solution to the problem is going to come through a person, the seed of the woman. And there will be war, enmity between your seed and between the seed of the woman through whom I'm going to bring the solution. Ultimately, we know that as the Messiah, the promised one, Jesus Christ. But then he goes on to say this to the woman, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I'll greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And I've told you a number of times about Genesis 3.16 and Genesis 4.7. And in Genesis 4, 7, God is talking to Cain and he says, Sin is crouching at the door and desires to have you, but you must master it. And when it says sin is desires to have you and you must master it, it's the same Hebrew phrase as God gives Eve in Genesis 3, 16. Your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. The idea is this is a curse. This is part of the curse now. There will be a battle of the sexes. I made your husband to lead and you're not going to like it. That's what, he's, that's what he's telling. 
Your desire will be to lead instead, but he will rule over you. And then to Adam, verse 17, because you listened to your wife and you ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Now you all get in the personal nature here. Because you did this, serpent. Because you did this, woman. Because you did this, Adam. And importantly, very importantly, in verse 17, God says, Cursed is the ground, but why is the ground cursed? Because of you. So in a biblical worldview, there are environmental factors that contribute to the misery in which we live. Because the environment has been cursed in addition to the people who inhabit that environment. And as a result of the ground being cursed through painful toil, you'll eat of it all the days of your life, and it will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you'll eat the plants of the field, but by the sweat of your brow you'll eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. So God is very clear, this is personal. This is what you did. But because of what you did, there are impersonal consequences. Friends, that's very important to a biblical worldview. And Romans 8, based upon Genesis 3, puts those together. Romans chapter 8 and verse 19. Take a look. Verse 19, Romans 8. The creation waits in eager expectation. Now, the creation, the physical world, is waiting. But waiting for what? Waiting in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Now, remember, Adam, cursed is creation. (laughs) Cursed is the physical world. Cursed is the earth because of you. And since you are the problem, the environment will not be healed until you become the solution. Until you are fixed, it won't be fixed. And so the creation is waiting in eager anticipation, but it's waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. Or put it another way, to find out all of those who are the redeemed, who have been fixed, who have been changed, who have had the internal problem solved. And once that is complete, there will be a new heaven and a new earth designed for those new people. But the new people come first. And there won't be a new environment until there are new people. Because this thing is first and foremost not impersonal creation, nature, environment. It is first of all personal. And everything else will only be fixed when we're fixed, says Romans 8. Verse 20 goes on to say, here's why the creation waits. Because the creation was subjected to frustration. Notice this, not by its own choice. 
but by the will of the one who subjected it. God subjected it. The ground didn't do anything. (laughs) The environment didn't do anything. The man and the woman did. And as a result of what the man and the woman did, there are now environmental effects. Now, that's a biblical worldview. That's the way the Bible views it. That's the way the Bible views sickness and death and disease and where it all came from. It all came from personal sin. And the Bible also says all the external, impersonal stuff will not be fixed until the root problem is handled, namely personal sin. So there won't be a new earth until there are new people. The new environment does not cure, a new environment does not cure sinful people. And so God says the people got to be changed, then the environment, not the other way around. Now do you see how your worldview affects your political view? Is your answer first, it's the environment? It's, and when I say the environment, I don't just mean clean water and all that stuff. I mean the people around us, the, you know, the, 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 the structures around us, all external to us. If we can get that external stuff right, that'll fix it. And God says, uh-uh. You can get all the external stuff right, but if all of that is inhabited by people who are not right, then it'll be broken again. And I, God, am not going to transform the external world until I have transformed the internal heart of individuals. That's a biblical worldview. And that in turn affects how we see our problems, how we see what's wrong, and how we deal with it. Now last week I gave you five people, five case studies from David Paulison of people, individuals, and their problems and how those problems are diagnosed and labeled in the world's viewpoint. Remember, it's, it's not me, it's something, it's, it's, not, it's not because of me. And so it's something, that, not that I have done, but something that has happened to me. So it all goes back to Genesis 3, but we have very sophisticated ways to say it now. And so Garrett is 23. I'm not going to read the bio for each of these case studies like we did last week, but just the diagnosis that goes with each of them. For the 23-year-old Garrett, his diagnosis is he suffers from intermittent explosive disorder. He's an addictive personality. And Garrett is all about Garrett, and he has control issues big time. Sarah has anorexia. She's a perfectionist with low self-esteem. Lise has a case of clinical depression and an obsessive-compulsive disorder, and she sets impossible standards for herself. Matt is bipolar and ADD, and he's an excitement junkie, big time. Chandra suffers from social anxiety disorder, and she sighs, and she gets glued to the tube, and she needs her chocolate fix. Now, do you notice how each of these diagnostic labels simply takes what we already know about these people? This is the way they behave. This is what they do. And then restates it in quasi-medical language. The actual experiences of these folks' lives get turned into a depersonalized condition. They have something. 
And problems become something a person has rather than the array of things a person feels and thinks and does. And I ask you to consider if that is the way God first looks at it. Does God first look at, at us as broken machines? Or is it, does he first look at us as people who are fearfully and wonderfully made, made in the image of God, but that image has become distorted because of sin? And as a result, we think and feel and say and do all sorts of things that are contrary to our design. And yes, as we will see, we are sick in all sorts of ways. I mean, really sick in the medical sense. But that's not where God first looks. God doesn't depersonalize us as conditions. But just like he said to Adam and Eve, because you and you and you, over and over again, and the environment is messed up because of you, and nature, creation, is in frustration and awaits the freedom that will come when the sons of God are revealed. But that's all because of you, us. That's a biblical worldview. So when you have a problem, or when somebody you're dealing with has a problem, where's the first place you look if you have a biblical worldview? We look where God says the root of our problems is. Now, that root has created all sorts of other fruit, physical fruit for us, chemical imbalances for us, all sorts of things for us. None of the diagnoses that, that we read are necessarily wrong. They're just incomplete. People may have all those things. But we still got to ask the question, why do people have that stuff? And we do not first resort to the non-biblical worldview, godless worldview, mechanistic, materialistic worldview of those who look at us as simply machines to whom something has happened. Now, I'd like to bounce through that a bit with you in our remaining nine minutes. And just give you some ways that as you look at your problems, I look at my problems, we try to help those that we know with the problems they have. The things that have gone wrong in this world have gone wrong because they start with us. And if we're going to deal with what's gone wrong with us, we've got to diagnose it right. So here's the first thing. As you try to help yourself, as you try to help others with our problems, understand that there are the facts, and then there's the interpretation of the facts. You see, in those five case studies that I read last week, about those five individuals, there's no disagreement about the facts, about what these people do. This is what they do. They have problems in particular areas. These are all observable and agreed upon facts. Mental health practitioners, friends and family, you, me, the God of the Bible, we all agree that Garrett is narcissistic, he has a bad temper, he drinks too much, and he uses porn. And he tries to control his world because Garrett thinks it's his world. And everybody agrees that Sarah starves herself. And she works relentlessly and she puts a lot of mirror time in. She demands perfection on Sarah's terms. 
And so we all, that's all just the facts. But then we've got to interpret those facts, don't we? What do those particular problems mean? Why do our five case studies, why do they live the way they live? Why are these people ruining their lives? And you have to ask yourself, do each of them suffer from a quasi-medical-sounding disorder that actually explains the problems? Do they have diseases or conditions that the labels correctly identify? Or is it that they're doing extremely disorderly things for extremely confusing reasons? Are they living out lifestyles that God accurately and correctly names? In other words, put it this way, is the final explanation of our problems something bad happening to us or is it something bad about us? And God says it's the second one and God gets the final say. I hope. Among Christians. Now, I want to... There's a lot to be said about this. I'll just say... One more thing about the facts and the interpretation. I'll have to quit after I give you one illustration. But a true interpretation of all these facts about these people sees the problem of sin in concrete terms, in the very details of these people's lives and their problems. And it's absolutely critical if we are going to say what the Bible says, that the root of our problems, personal problems, societal problems, the root of all of it is ultimately our sin, then we have to understand sin accurately. And most, even Christians, don't. Most identify something as sin by saying it's something a person consciously chooses to do. They do some bad action, that's sin. Well, that's true. But if you think that, then you think that the person just has the power to just say no. Sin is that, but it's not just that. Sin's more than that. We do many wrong, unloving things without even knowing that we do them or why. Most, hear this, most sin is not a matter of conscious choice. The Bible refers to sinning with a high hand. Do you remember reading that in your Old Testament a lot? Sinning with, a, sinning with a, a high hand, these are conscious sins. But much of what we do and we think and we feel, we do because we are blind and self-deceived. We're metaphorically drunk. We're kind of walking in our sleep. The Bible says callous, acting like brute beasts, walking in the dark. And it's not a matter of just saying no. Hear this. It's not a matter of just saying no, and that's why... We don't just need five steps to freedom or 12 steps. Sin is much more powerful than that, much more deceptive than that. And so I don't just need a formula. You know what I need? I need a Savior. This is why I have to have a personal rescuer, a personal Savior, because the problem is that deep and that pervasive. And if we don't get the diagnosis right, we will not get the prescription right. Now, I'm going to talk about next week looking at these cases in some more detail and how from a biblical standpoint, a gospel standpoint, we try to help folks with their problems. Let me give you one illustration in closing. And I asked 
my daughter, if I could use this illustration, and she said I could. But my uh, dear Lainey is 17 and just completed her 11th grade year, high school. So she's now a senior, and we can't believe it. Uh, But uh, Lainey has done well, very well in school. She's done well socially, and we just thank God's grace for that. But here's why. I mean, we thank God's grace. We should for every gift that he gives, all of us. But we're especially thankful for God's grace in that girl's life, and here's why. Most of you do not know that uh, Lainey had a fear of man. That's using biblical language. A deep fear of man problem. From a very young age, she was scared about all sorts of things. And part of the reason she was scared about all sorts of things is because she got her mother's intellect. That means she's really smart. And she observes and sees everything. I mean, from the time she was a baby, she's just observing everything. The eyes are going everywhere. She just knows everything that's going on around her. And so at a very young age, she's just picking up on stuff. And, you know, there are bad things that happen out there. I don't like that big, loud sound that happens when it rains sometimes. That's scary. And then there's that big light that comes, and that looks like it could be hurting somebody. And these cars that zoom by and people that don't appear to be looking where they're going. And at a very young age, she's just observing the world. And she's scared about it. And she would ask us all the time about what's going to happen because of her fears. And she had fears of being around people in different environments. Proverbs 29 and verse 25, the fear of man will prove to be a snare. Well, Lainey was homeschooled for uh, first through sixth grade. And, you know, that was a very comfortable environment for her. But when she approached seventh grade, we decided that it would be good on a number, for a number of reasons for her to go to school. So we sent her to school. She's now got these fears. I've got to go into this. Now, anybody going into a new class has some low-level fear, but she had some serious fear. Hear this. For the first year of her school, she and I and sometimes Kim would sit out in the parking lot while she would throw up, often multiple times, before she could go into school. That's how scared she was. But she did. And we worked through it with her as best we could by God's grace. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, that was hard for her. It was hard for us. But she did. And she got her first year in, and she began to be more comfortable. And over time, she began to be more comfortable. And over these last few years, she's been, the last three years, and her senior year included, she's been a class officer. She pretty much runs the joint, she thinks. But, you know, when she graduates by God's grace next year, we'll be thinking about all that. And we'll be thinking about God's grace in that young girl's life. Now, here's the deal. Kim and I have talked often, and we've told Lainey this. We really believe that if we had made our first resort to go see a doctor, 
that she would have been medicated. And she would have some sort of disorder. Lots of phobias, right, that you could list. You remember Peanuts, Charlie Brown, Lucy with the five cent, you know, psychiatric counseling, and put your nickel in. You know, and one of them, she says, uh, tell me what your problem is. And, you know, Charlie goes through a bunch of phobias. And she's saying, well, and you might have this. And she gives them some more phobias. And she says, you know, if you just tell us what's going on, we can put a label on it. Now, that was a joke back then. But just tell us what's going on. There'll be a label for Laney. And there'll be a medication for Laney. Now, in God, this is in God's grace. In God's grace, he allowed that girl to be told and to apprehend his truth about her and about her fears. And we did our level best to approach that from what God says. You fear what people think about you. There's a reason that you fear and revere what people think about you too much. So let's talk about why you don't need to worry about what the world can do to you. You find your security in Jesus. And God gave us wonderful opportunities to counsel her in the gospel. Now, I'm telling you this, friends, for this reason. I want you to know, as I talk about these things over the next few weeks, we have some personal experience with, with problems, with difficulty, and hard difficulty of, you know, throwing up every... And I'm, I'm out there, and I've got... We, you know, we're, every time we take her, we're equipped with plastic bags and, and doing the best we can with it. And so I don't speak about these matters in, in a vacuum, but I do believe with all of my heart and from my experience that we need to look at our problems and the problems of those we seek to help first and foremost from God's perspective. And it may well be that because the environment, including the machine that is our bodies, is broken because of sin, it's all messed up. We got all kinds of imbalances. There may be that. But don't first resort to that. Don't first buy into the machine idea, the materialistic idea. And see how God uses his word, his truth, to change someone's perspective. To literally change their mind. On themselves, on God, on their circumstances. And then we'll see how he might use doctors, and he might use medication, and he might use a bunch of other things as well. All as matters of his grace. But we will and we must look at ourselves and look at others from God's standpoint first. All right, we'll continue that next week. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your love for us, your mercy to us. In a fallen world, in all of the ways that its fallenness is manifest, including a little girl going to school, just being scared, we, at one time, lived in a garden unafraid. And now we're scared. But you've told us why that has changed dramatically. You've told us why we hide the way we do. 
You've told us where the root of the problem lies. And all that we see around us are symptoms of the root of hearts that have wandered from the God who made us and owns us by right of creation and by right of redemption. So, Lord, help us as your people whose world you are reorienting by reorienting our hearts and our minds and our allegiances. Help us as people in whom you are doing that work to be, to be diligent about looking into your word about how you diagnose us and how you diagnose those that we're trying to help. And help us to be very careful, Lord God, in the way we discern and, and discriminate and think about the various propositions with which we are faced and the labels that we're given, the diagnoses that are proposed. Help us first to see and have a grasp of what you say. And then help us to fit in solutions, helpful solutions that you give us by your grace in various forms so that we're looking at life and living life from your perspective. Help us to do that this week and help us over the next few weeks as we look at personal, our personal wrongs and the problems we face and how Jesus and the gospel are the ultimate solution. It's in his name we pray. Amen.